A lot of you are familiar with the DNA Project and have been rocking with us for a while, but some of you aren't. A lot of you are faithful listeners of the podcast, but aren't familiar with some of the other work that we do. So I just want to take a quick moment to explain to you a little bit more of what we do. So you're getting married, or you have a friend, a cousin, a sister, somebody you know is getting married. Okay. You've booked your venue, caterers, photographer, all that good stuff. When it comes to live music, most people have no idea where to look. We have you covered. Picture this. During the ceremony, while guests are being seated, or while the bride's walking down the aisle. During the cocktail hour, while guests are just mingling and having a good time. Don't forget about dinner music. That's very important to set the mood while guests eat. And we definitely can't forget the party. Let's get the party started right now with The DNA Project. www.thednaproject.ca for more information. Hello, bonjour, and wagwan, everyone. Thank you for listening to The DNA Airwaves. Today's episode is brought to you by The MPL, Toronto's modular film and audio studio. Please check out the MPL, that's maple without the vowels, dot com for more details. We're also brought to you by The DNA Project, your entertainment agency. Want to learn more about this great company and what they do? Then please visit thednaproject.ca for more information. Our guest today is entertainment lawyer Matthew Ram. Matthew graduated from the University of Toronto with an economics degree and then completed his Juris Doctorate from the University of Detroit Mercy. Shortly after, Matthew became the founder of MSM Group Professional Corporation where he practices in the area of real estate, corporate and entertainment law. Once MSM Legal Group became a renowned name in the industry, Matthew focused his efforts on two of his other passions, entrepreneurship and music. Today, MSM Legal Group offers a comprehensive and innovative new business startup package and is rapidly growing in the entertainment industry. We sat down with Matthew in the MPL studio to pick his brain about the work in the entertainment law, and he offers up some great advice for artists trying to seriously pursue music as a career. A lot of valuable information worth listening to, so please enjoy. This is the DNA Airwaves. Do you think of everything through a legal eye, though, before you go into any event or proposition? I guess uh, I should have saved that one for the we're rolling. We're rolling. Oh, we're rolling. Uh, uh, hey. Fire away. <laughs> I mean, I knew that. Um, you want me to answer well, now? Or yeah, no, go ahead. Because I, I probably have a, keep an interesting answer. Um, I actually, I, I guess, we'll get. I don't know if we'll get into a bit of my background, but uh, I have a, a degree in economics from U of T. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that has really guided the way I see everything from like that point onwards. Gotcha. Even now, to me, everything just knowing like everything I learned through this economics degree, it's always in, I look at it through that lens, mm-hmm. right? Everything kind of has a cost benefit analysis, but not so much in like dollars and cents, yeah. but like even a trade off in time right? or like, you know, uh, investment in people, mm-hmm. right? Everything has like a cost benefit analysis. And that's kind of how I view things. To view everything through the lens of a lawyer, where you're always looking at something as a liable situation, right? Um, <laughs> it could be maddening. <laughs> it can be, yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it can definitely uh, be maddening and, and be almost a pessimistic view of a lot of things. For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we met through SARB, uh, yeah. which is an accountant that we use. Um, and I always like me and him will consult on a lot of clients and, you know, they come with me out of all this legal fear. And I'm like, look, I can draft anything legally, but you have other things you got to consider that are probably going to happen on a more frequent basis. For right. example, taxes. True. So any corporate clients we have, I always have them consult with an accountant, SARB, 
and then he outlines everything from a tax perspective. And then you realize, okay, like as much as I want to protect myself and build through three or four corporations, I also got to consider things that I deal with on a day-to-day basis, which are taxes and things like that. So right. it might not make sense to really mm-hmm. look at it from a legal eye all the time in, in that regard. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting that you are able to kind of push that aside in regular life and just kind of not put the lawyer hat on. Yeah, uh, I never really wanted to wear the lawyer hat. So it's, it's, uh, it's uh, I guess, an uh, easier thing for me. So what, I guess we'll just jump right into what made you get into the lawyer thing. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, no. Um, okay, so I guess yeah, I mentioned I, I, I did economics at U of T. Right. Uh, once I finished, you, I was looking to do my MBA there. Mm-hmm. To do that, you need two years of work experience. So I started working. Any job you get uh, with an entry level, entry job you get with a business degree, general business degree is kind of entry level, mundane data entry type stuff, or right. you're like a teller at a bank. Right. So I started working in tech insurance and um, realized very quickly that it just wasn't for me. It wasn't moving at the pace I wanted to move, and I just felt like. You know, I could. I, I wanted to get to where I was going a little bit quicker. Mm. So I started doing some research, and um, there were other MBA programs. Some of them also had work hour requirements, but um, I found out that a lot of these CEOs and executives within these major corporations all have legal backgrounds. So I figured, um, you know, if I got a law degree, because all you needed was any undergraduate degree in the LSAT to get in, I can kind of like circumvent and find my way into the corporate world that way. Right. Because they were hiring people with legal training in like contract management, risk assessment, um, HR, um, and a lot of executive positions. So I'm like, cool, I'll do that. So wrote the LSAT, ended up getting to law school. I went to law school in Michigan and Detroit. Um, it's not so much that I didn't like what I was learning. Right. I just didn't like the process at all. Of lo- like law school? Yeah. So basically, and it's more or less the same thing here, but once you get into law school, they basically train you to get into a law firm right. as, a, as an associate or, or um, a very a very junior person uh, and, you know, hopefully climb slave down. yourself. Yeah. For, mm-hmm. for five to 10 years in hopes of making some sort of partners. Isn't that what position. all schools kind of do? Uh, yeah, in a sense, but this was very tailored. It gotcha. was like everything was tailored towards getting that first job right. and then like making those moves to getting some sort of partnership. And, and why I, did you go to the States, sorry, and not law yeah. school in Canada? So, yeah, so because I kind of made this realization after my first year out of uh, out of university, out, after my undergrad, right. I was a little bit late in the application process. Okay. So U.S. has a rolling process. So I got into basically all the schools I applied to there. Right. Um, and I got waitlisted on a few schools here. What's waitlisted mean? So basically, if people drop out within that enrollment year, then they'll like go down the list and gotcha. start calling people. Okay. Um, doesn't happen all that often unless people choose a different school or something like that. So I wasn't really going to wait another year to do this. Yeah. So uh, Detroit Mercy in Michigan was the closest school to Toronto. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going there thinking I would transfer back. Um, but I mean, the school I, I enjoyed, um, but it was just everything, the whole curriculum, curriculum, the system there. They did a lot of good things. They, they focused a lot on practical training, which I enjoyed and, and I thought valuable. Okay. Um, more so than a lot of other American schools and much more so than 
Canadian schools. Oh, okay. Um, so those are available. But um, yeah, so they're just kind of like training you for this. And I was literally the only one, at least within my class, asking, okay, I know there's these other opportunities. I know there's other type of jobs. Like, mm-hmm. where do we get information on this? How do I know what courses to take? How do I know, you know, where to apply? How do, like, even when you're applying for like summer positions, they are all within law firms or in-house counsel somewhere, mm-hmm. but there's none of these like corporate type jobs, contract management, risk assessment, things like that. Right. Right. Um, of course they had no answers for me. So I made my mind up uh, pretty early on that I just wasn't going to practice. I'll get the degree and, I, and I'll make the most of it, but I wasn't going to practice. Um, anyways, three years later, finished, come back to Toronto uh, you know, West Indian parents. So yeah. they're like, you know, you can't go to law school and not actually try it out. And, right. and you know, I'll be the first lawyer within my family. So, um, but you had no intention of doing that. No, I didn't. Really? Um, I had no intention of doing that. I just, I was actually thinking like, shit, I got to like probably now do the MBA and add another two years. And I mean, I was done with school since high school. So this <laughs> was like, shit, I got to do more and more. But, um, I wasn't just, I wasn't really satisfied. Right. Um, but uh, I decided to try it out. Mm-hmm. So I got licensed. Um, I started doing in Canada, you got an article, which is like a 10 month uh, internship. And I was doing that with a sole practitioner in North York, which was amazing. Um, you know, when you're at a big firm articling or in a junior position, you're, you're very assembly lined. So you don't really get to learn all the aspects of that particular file or transaction. Right. When I was working with a sole practitioner, because it was literally me, his two clerks, and and himself, I was doing a lot of it from open to close on this file, all the uh, trust accounting, all of that stuff I was doing myself, which really helped me when I started my own practice. Mm-hmm. So I did that, um, started applying for jobs, and uh, realized it's not what you think it is, um, especially in the legal profession. It's they give you some base salary, right. uh, some marginal base salary, and then typically. Um, you make a percentage of every billable hour on top of your minimum requirement. Gotcha. Can get a little uh, over the head, but essentially, you know, they give you a base salary. It's like, okay, with that, you do $200,000 worth of billable hours. We'll give you a percentage of anything on top of that. Right. So in my mind, it's like, I'm still going to have to bring in business. And, and you know, if I want to make a salary that I want to make. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, before I do that, why don't I try to do this myself. Right. I don't know my own practice. I have my own ideas on how to do this as well. It's like, let me try. I got to bring in the business anyways. Um, see if it works. If not, I can get back into corporate world or work for a firm or whatever it was. Although that was my last resort going back to a firm. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I started in 2015, uh, July 2015. I kind of had a sort of novel idea, uh, which was mobile signing. Okay. Uh, so this was me going out to clients, uh, signing documents, doing consultations. Um, there was one or two other law firms doing it. Um, and this was particularly in real estate. So I started in real estate because that just happened to be where my network was and some of my experience. Right. Um, but they were do the law firms that were offering this were doing it, uh, one at a very high price point. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, they weren't sending an actual lawyer. Right. Right. So um, I saw an opportunity there and it actually did extremely well for me. Uh, one, because of service, there was a need for it in the market. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have 
households where both parents are professionals, doctors, lawyers, whatever it is, very limited time. So it's easier for me to go to them one evening um, or meet them in their office or sure. elderly people or people, young kids. Yeah. Yep. So um, the I, th- I think the really, uh, the genius part for me, which I hadn't realized until I got into it was me sitting down at someone's kitchen table or in their office kind of eliminates that whole dynamic that people have in their mind about a lawyer. Yeah, the stuffy feeling. Yeah. yeah. And and it did very well because now people were connecting with me on a different level. Right. That whole power dynamic is gone that exists within my office, Comfortable right? for sure. Yeah. yeah. They're telling me about <clears throat> sorry, everything they had going on and just on like within meetings, like calling family members, like, hey, I have this guy, he's willing to answer some questions. You so it worked really well. Yeah. And um you know, I started to move quickly. I had now real estate agents and mortgage brokers reaching out to me because I offered this service and saying like, hey, I have clients, can you come out to them? Mm-hmm. So by the end of 2016, I had three offices. Um, All in Toronto? Uh, Richmond Hill, Etobicoke, and then Mississauga. Gotcha. Wow. Um, yeah. And then, you know, in business, you learn certain things. And most of what I do is transactional. So now I've transitioned everything into one office, which you know, COVID now, who knows if you even need the office, (laughs) but um, yeah, so I was doing fairly well. And then because, you know, I had now was able to sustain myself on the real estate side of things and and my business was able to, I really got to uh, dive into what my real passion was, which was uh, new business startups, entrepreneurship. Okay. So I put a lot of focus into um, really finding, soliciting and, 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 servicing and helping a new business startup. So, you know, Sarv, the accountant I mentioned, um, I partnered with him. Uh, there was a branding consulting who we still work with, uh, Mark Gallardo, who, we, who I consulted with him as well. And we put together a package basically, okay. right? So you get your incorporation, you get any accounting advice, and then you get your logo branding, all of that, okay. right? To me, I'm very big on um, complementary services and, and um, compiling like value add. Right. Um, Because I think it it works out for, you know, the three of us involved providing the service, but also for the client. Yeah. So started to do that. And then that started to pick up, especially with this process we had created. Um, And I do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And through that, I guess, is kind of how I ended up in entertainment. Right. Because I had some good friends of mine who had been doing music for about, I don't even know at that time was this 2018. So they've been about 15 years before that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was kind of up and down on and off, but, right. and this is not to take anything away from creatives, but when you have creatives trying to do, uh, business, anybody really, it, it really is a, a, a particular skill set needed to, to deal with the stress and, and the amount of organization and stuff to, to sure. run a business. Yeah. Right. Um, so it becomes difficult. Uh, so they asked me if I could help them on the business side of things, get them set up and on the right track. And, uh, that was S4G4. So, um, if, so, so anyways, in 2018, we kind of wiped the slate clean, clean with them. Uh, I set up their whole back end, uh, the business stuff, um, all their contracts, things like that, everything they need to move forward on a more organized, uh, basis. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of seen, um, you know, the success I was having within my own business. Like, hey, can you actually help us like manage this from a business standpoint? So I started working with them, started meeting more and more people. And that's how I kind of like learned a lot about the entertainment industry, not only from the legal side, but now it was like, 
you know, going with them to like New York, LA, meeting with different people. Right. Um, and it was good. I enjoyed it. It was different. Um, still very contract based, which is kind of my strong suit. Um, so, so that started to move. And then I started to pick up more and more clients, but then this is not even anything related to that, but just kind of fell into my lap. But uh, Smiley, I started working with. Um, Shout out to Smiley. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, some of my bigger deals early on, early, early on, sorry, um, all came out of, you know, me working with him. Mm-hmm. You know, we did some publishing stuff for him and then eventually into a, a recording agreement with him. Um, and I learned a lot through that process and I continued to learn a lot with that. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, once I started working with him, you know, with the, with the clout that he has in the city, yeah. a lot of people started to, you know, take interest and really ask, you know, how, who did this for you and stuff like that. And then it just continued to grow from there. Yeah. Um, it's definitely got a buzz going right now too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 He's, he's doing well. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's. Unique to me in the sense, um, because, you know, there are times Smiley sit me down and be like, hey, Matt, like, how did you do this? Like, tell me about all, like, you know, properties you own or business you have and, like, how do I do that? Right. And, you know, for a kid his age with the eyes on him and the Mm -hmm. amount of, you know, clout that he has, it's good to see that he still understands that this is a business and there's somewhere he wants to get in life and he needs to see how to do that. And he doesn't kind of get lost in it. My only that's hope much. is that he shows his audience that side of him too, because I think that's important. You saying that is awesome because what I see is a different image of him, right? And I think his fans would see a different image. But if he can show some of those kids that he is influencing, because I know because my nephews were banging him over the weekend. So I know he's got influence in the streets. Right. If they can see that it's not all fun and games, this kid behind the scenes is is doing business moves and other things. He's not just throwing up money and drinking alcohol. He's got his brain and his head together. And my nephews think it's all about drinking and throwing up money. You know what I mean? So from an old man standpoint, I would love to see guys like Smiley show the kids like, yeah, we do have fun, but we put in work and we're asking questions and we're trying to better ourselves. And I think that would help a lot of a lot of fans. That was just a yeah. selfish little point. That's kind of like the it's like a fine line for artists, I think, mm-hmm. trying to uh, show that side of themselves. You're right. Yep. Make it interesting and still, for sure. you know, have the influence as an artist, performer, entertainer and live this big grand life that Absolutely. everyone's trying to get to so that's a great that's point a, for well, sure yeah, yeah. it's a tough line for yeah. someone like him to to yeah. be able to do no yeah definitely and the thing is um and yeah i i think you're right i think you know uh fans would benefit from knowing that side of him um at the same time like he's providing a product and there's mm-hmm. something make it into like my whole thoughts on on how to do this but um you know, it's entertainment. It, he's right. providing, you know, they they might be into his music because of that persona that he for gives sure. off, yep. right? You're right. But the other thing is, you're right, it's definitely beneficial for, for him to, to show this side of himself. Um, but you, he has to be in a situation where he was exposed to that and, and can see that and know like, okay, wait, maybe I should be thinking this, right? Mm-hmm. True. Yep. And I think that's something that's lacking a lot Right. in the industry, which is actually why, you know, I was more than willing to do this. Mm-hmm. I speak at a number of places just trying to like educate um, people trying to get into music or entertainment in general, just to really understand what's involved and, and 
how this works because yeah. it's not, you know, Drake's house, yeah. um, you know, and, and traveling over the world. And I mean, as much as it is, it also isn't. And right. it's not what you think it is. Yeah. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. You know, yeah. like a lot of people don't realize is like, yeah, you're on road traveling, touring, but you need to do that. Yeah. It's not like you have a choice. Exactly. You got to do that because all the money you made just went back to label on your album. You really make your money on the road and you have to be doing that throughout the year to make your money. And then all your money you make has to go back into it anyways. Sure. Yeah. Right. Almost. So for me, it's like if an artist is smart enough to realize that use your platform use your success to create something for yourself outside of music as well. Mm -hmm. You're just in a much better position. Same thing with professional athletes, right? Like it's, you know, they're all the same type of thing where all as much money as you make, it all has to go back into it. And then you can blow through it very quickly. Right. Um, and if you don't really know, especially, you know, a lot of these, uh, as young people, you don't know how to manage this type of money. You don't know how to deal with these things, right? Like you get in advance, on a deal and you end up blowing it on whatever it is. Sometimes it's not even, you know, like chains and cars. It's like, okay, let me, you know, like Pay get a debts. place for my girl yeah. or like, you know, help my mom with some debts and right. like all the money's gone. You're not realizing there's tax owed on all that money you just right. got. Right. Yep. So now end of the year, it's like, okay, all the money's gone, but now I owe taxes and mm -hmm. you're ready in a, in a, you know, a red situation. Right. Definitely so. have to be looking ahead. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when, when I hear entertainment attorney kind of have this big picture of what that means right. and kind of almost think that the job entails everything. So how would you define um, kind of just the range of what your job really does entail? Yeah, so an entertainment lawyer is essentially a contract lawyer specific for the copyrights involved in entertainment. Okay. Um, there's a few, you know, within that, there's a few different roles that entertainment lawyers can play, uh, a few different hats they can put on. So some of them are just contract lawyers. So you have an agreement you need, they'll kind of uh, put that together for you or negotiate it. Uh, some of them are entertainment litigators. So let's see, you need to sue someone for trademark infringement or copyright infringement. Um, you know, they'll, they'll specialize in that. Some will do both. Um, and then some lawyers um, will actually uh, solicit opportunities uh, for their clients and kind of, um, you know, like put parties together. Like, you know, if you have an artist and you're trying to source distribution right. or recording or something like that, some lawyers are able to uh, to use networks to kind of do that for clients as well. It sounds more like a manager. That's what I was yeah. going to say as well. Yeah. Or um, agent. Overlap, right? Right? Yeah. Kind of bleeding it's almost, into all three. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, entertainment almost, uh, it does kind of, there's many aspects of it, but mm -hmm. sports is also another area, especially with the blend now of like esports and right. stuff yeah. like that. But um, all of these sports agents have legal backgrounds, right? right? They're all lawyers, they're all they're licensed and registered um, because you're soliciting the opportunity and then you're negotiating the contract and everything. So there's a lot of... Uh, technical legal stuff in there. So it's very common. And um, same thing. So, um, you know, for myself, I don't litigate. Um, I have done it before. It's not something I enjoy. Right. So I just kind of, I just don't do it. And I would rather leave it to someone who is good at that. Um, I'm a strong believer in like focusing on your strengths and then finding uh, 
people who are stronger in your weaknesses. Um, so I don't do that, but I do solicit a lot, a lot of opportunities for my clients and, and especially because I was uh, on the management side of things um, and made certain connections and kind of know how that works, how mm-hmm. to leverage uh, certain things to, to get opportunities. Yeah. Um, I definitely do as much of that as I can. Okay. What are some of the, I guess, fundamental things that artists, musicians, <clears throat> freelancers, um, I guess, other creatives and entrepreneurs should have in place? Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's like the legal stuff, um, but I think the the biggest fundamental, I, I think, is the mentality when mm-hmm. you decide to get into something like this. Okay. Um, so, what I mean by that is a lot of you know, let's say you have a talent you can sing. For you to then take that and turn that into your livelihood um, changes that altogether. Right. Right. So uh, fundamentally, you need to understand that before deciding to do this. And then once you understand that, you can give it that respect and then give it everything it needs to succeed in that in that space now. I think that's Good important point, yeah. for anyone that has a hobby too. Yeah. Like if exactly. you're a carpenter, if you like making bird nests or something, whatever. And you want to get that nests. into a business. Bird houses. Bird yeah. house, sorry. You know what I meant. No, we're making nests now. <laughs> and you have a passion and you want to turn that to an, into a business. You have to also change your mindset because you'll you'll lose you lose yourself in the hobby and not focus on the business and both of them are equally as important. Mm. So I, I think there's it's not just for musicians or yeah. artists that could be applied to anyone looking to actually make something their livelihood. 100%. And, yeah. and, and you know, I recognize that that was an issue, that mm-hmm. people weren't realizing that. That's why, you know, I'm, I'm stating that now. But right. you're completely right. It's for all my new business startups. I always tell them, I'm like, if you're going to take your passion... If you're going to pursue your passion as a career, mm-hmm. it's no longer a passion for you. You need to understand that. Exactly. Right? The utility, the fun you got out of it, the enjoyment you got out of it, it's just a passion is is gone now. It's yeah. now your livelihood. You can still get some enjoyment out of it, but you got to understand everything else that comes with that. For That's sure. a trade-off. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, And I also tell people, it's like understanding that now, you know, life is not really about pursuing your your passions as your career. Because again, that will change, right? right? It's more so about be, trying to become passionate about what you're pursuing or what you're doing. Mm. For example, never wanted to practice law. Right. I just happened yeah. to find a way to become passionate about how I practice it, um, and which has led to my success. For sure. Um, so you know, that's I think that's a fundamental thing, and and, and yeah. I every every time I, I talk about this that's always where i start it's like you need to understand that you are now taking something that you may be talented in or a passion you have and now converting it into a livelihood which is fine as long as you can give it that respect and, and understand what it is then you know how to deal with it properly and you know talk to a lawyer get an accountant right maybe you need a manager mm-hmm. um, once you do that you can understand the skills you have which is usually just creating the product and then understanding that you need other people now or, or other service providers or um, other tools to help market and uh, commercialize your, your product. product that you're right. creating. Yeah. Would, right? you, would you say that um, you had some sort of underlying passion, like even just growing up that kind of is there now that ties into what you do? Um, yeah, so I'm... I'm 
I'm I'm big on design. Um, so I, you know, like for a few of my clients, um, I like to help or advise on, you know, like some of the merchandise and things like that. So right. for me, I've just found a way to uh, incorporate some of what I'm passionate about into um, what I do. But it reminds me of, um, you guys remember Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs? Yeah. That mm-hmm. guy. So he had a talk. Um, I think it was basically for graduating high school students, at just debunking the whole follow your passion thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommend finding it online, but it ends with him saying, don't follow your passion, but always bring it with you. Uh, it yeah. really reminds me of what you're saying. Yeah, True. That's a for great sure. Looking yeah, no, that's, yeah. The, yeah, that's exactly, that's it. And I think, you know, society as it is right now we're so used to this like instant gratification and like it's 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 kind of perverted the way we think about how we should be happy yes Mm -hmm. right so you know you have a whole generation now that's like you know i'm not happy i'm not instantly fulfilled in what i'm doing Mm -hmm. not realizing i'm doing this in exchange for a paycheck this Mm. is not it's not called fun it's called work right it's called your job right so as long as you can understand that and then you know, give it that respect. You, you, it won't take away from whatever you do enjoy in life and like what you, you know, are passionate about. And at any opportunity, if you're able to, you know, put the two together, then that's just even better. For sure. What what stage of an artist's progression do you think they should even reach out to a lawyer? Yeah. So so and also to tie into your question about the fundamentals. So um, you know, one is really getting the mindset right. Mm-hmm. Um talking to a mentor, trying to understand what's involved and then deciding if you're willing to take that on. And then two is actually getting the business set up because you are a business. You understand that you yourself are now becoming a business, whether you're a producer, an engineer, uh, you know, a singer, songwriter, whatever it is, you're now becoming a business. So Mm -hmm. you need to do everything that comes along with that. I typically advise my clients the first place to start is um, setting up a corporation. Right. You will need it eventually, uh, especially as an artist. Once you get signed, you'll need something called a loan through, which is basically how the label pays you. Okay. Um, but, you know, you got to set this up. And, and there's a number of other benefits. Um, you know, you start to, like, let's say, um, you know, it's a DNA project, right? DNA mm-hmm. Project Inc. Whenever we register that corporation, that name is now registered somewhere. That that's it's 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 a protected name in the sense that we can trace back and say they've been using it since this date right somebody mm-hmm. comes three years later later and tries to take the name it's like well no we have a register not only can we show you our website this and that that we've been using we also have a registration showing that this is a name we secured since this date right right so it's beneficial that way but it also helps you organize your income mm-hmm. right so as money comes in i mean a good accountant is always good to have but they'll tell you as much as you can leave in there leave it because your corporate tax rate is going to be far less than your personal tax rate. And right. I'll give you a quick example because, you know, maybe it's easier to conceptualize in my mind. I talk about this stuff all the time. But let's say, you know, you sign a record deal and you get $200,000 advance. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a corporation set up, that income comes to you personally, right? So Matthew Ram is now taking an income for 2020 of $200,000. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pay income tax at a tax rate of $200,000, but you also got to take in whatever other income I've taken in that year. Right. Right. So let's say I'm at $250,000. I'm going to pay 
you know, whatever the tax bracket is, 30 something percent, yeah, 40 percent, whatever it is. Yeah. If I have a corporation, I can now pull that money, have it paid to the corporation or I leave it in there and I pay corporate tax rate of whatever it is, 13 percent. And I only take out whatever I need essentially use. I only need like 50,000 within that year. I just take that, add it to my personal income, and then I'm in a tax bracket. My If my other income was 50, I've now taken 50 out of my corporation that has this 200,000. I'm paying income tax on 100,000 as opposed to if I took it personally and paying on 250,000. Right. Right. So, um, and all of these things matter, especially as these numbers get bigger and bigger. It's It, it really matters. So for sure. Um, that's another benefit. You can you can definitely manage your income better. Um, and now also, again, mentality and, and mindset. So you're now interacting with people in the industry through a you know a legal entity, right? So it's, you know, if you have a manager, you know, and they're an employee of your 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 corporation now or, or they're contracted with you through your corporation, mm-hmm. it's just a different way to deal with people um, than you know, as a sole proprietor or just, which is essentially just you acting as yeah. yourself. Can sure. I ask you, sorry, anybody go, else? Go ahead. Um, a lot of people tune in just because they want to hear, um, Dariki calls them nuggets of information <laughs> that nobody would have heard. And I remember when I was, I had a small inter, like entertainment law class in college and I remember just our minds being blown constantly of like, that's how that works. Do you have any examples of working with uh, new or advanced artists and anything that you find that a lot of artists and the public don't know that, I don't know, blows their minds, scares them, yep. confuses them? Can you give us a few examples? Uh, I'll give you one, one example that's, pretty common, especially for people just getting into this. Um, and, you know, when I mention this to a lot of people, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that, but they had, they had no clue. <laughs> so a lot of people don't understand in we'll music. We'll be honest if we knew it or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, in music, there's a very clear distinction between publishing and then sales. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, for producers, when they're, uh, when I'm doing agreements for them, even with artists, but I'm doing agreements, you know, like a, for, for an instrumental and, um, you know, there's an advance, so you buy, you buy the instrumental. Right. Um, but the producer has no idea that they're also entitled to their publishing on this record. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with the artists. They're, they don't understand that, you know, all of this Publishing is not even yours. Half of that song, that instrumental goes to the producer and then half of it goes to you. Mm-hmm. And I'll just kind of explain that, um, what that is. So, Is that automatic or is that something that the that's producer... That's automatic. Okay. That's automatic. So the, your publishing is tied to your copyrights, right? So once you create something and in, it come, as soon as you've created, you've also created the copyright and then that's captured by your publishing. Can we back up for a second about yeah. copywriting? Um, as soon as you create it, it's yours. That's something that I think a lot of artists don't understand. They think, and I did this too when I was 15, they mail themselves uh, yeah. the CD back then just to prove that it's theirs. But really, really? as soon as you create <laughs> something, it belongs to you. Yes. Right? It's just yours because you made it. That's Correct. what people should understand. Correct. The legally, that's... Yeah. Right. Legally. Okay. As soon as you create it, it's yours, right? I don't like think a lot of people know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as soon as you create it, it's yours. Legally, as soon as it's it's made, it, it those copyrights attach. It would help if you can prove that it's yours. Yeah, for sure, exactly. right. yeah, yeah. that's the whole mailing yeah. thing, right? And right. I, and I and 
we're going to get on some tangents here, but I always tell my clients, like, especially if you're a songwriter or something, you know, email yourself back these lyrics, right? Because mm-hmm. as, as you shop them out, you never know where something may end up. And then you can be mm-hmm. like, hey, I sent it to this person in 2018. Here's the email. Right. And email, it, it can be used legally if it's a server like you Gmail, can. right? Yeah, you, you can. can go, and, okay. And that, so the whole mailing, um, you know, yourself, uh, your own CD or something like that is mm-hmm. just to show there's a registered mail, just proof something registered that shows this was created on this date. That's, that's the only proof mm-hmm. of that. That's the only uh, reason for that. Sorry. So, um, you know, I always advise clients to do that. If you're sending out beat packs, you know, like send me a copy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just so at least I have it in my, in my office, uh, like on this day, <coughs> this was a pack. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And then, sorry, we were talking about Things that people didn't yes, know. Yes, publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, so you know, you create, you write the lyrics, you create the instrumental. The the copyright is instantly attached to that, um, and there's <clears throat> a few different copyrights that attach there that can get very um, complicated, a little hard to understand. Um, but anyways, when you're now. Uh, selling that instrumental let's say to an artist you know you're selling them for a nominal value um, and there are going to be sales attached to the sale of that record but you are still you still own your your copyrights your mm-hmm. publishing right mm-hmm. right so you know there are performing rights organizations like so can yeah um, that will capture the royalties from this publishing uh, at least in Canada but if you sign with a publisher, uh, they'll capture it around the world. Okay. Um, so, you know, let's say... For By capture, example, meaning if somebody played it at a coffee shop in Japan, you'll correct. get an email and a check about it. Correct. Okay. Right? And mind you, it's it's not... These are like cents on, Point, on each yeah. play, but, you know, that you consider three billion people around the world, right. it, it, can, it can add up yeah, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, uh, yeah, so a lot of... A lot of uh, People in the industry, especially when you come in, don't understand that publishing is a completely separate thing. So if I do an instrumental agreement, um, you know, a beat purchase agreement, and I don't address the publishing, who's, you know, the the um, the default is 50-50 between whoever writes a song and whoever Produce. does the instrumental. Okay. Right? Because also there's no copyright in performing it. Right? So if you mm-hmm. so if you get a songwriter plus somebody else did the instrumental and you're just performing the song, um, there's not much publishing there for you mm-hmm. unless you've added some lyrics here and there, mm-hmm. right? Because the song is made up of the lyrics, like that's the copyright. Right. That's the brain work, I guess, that's gone into it. And then the instrumental, that's the other side of it. So, you know, and those are typically split 50-50 unless the parties agree or it's evidence that, you know, the instrumental was a little bit more. Maybe they also did some writing. They gave some melodies or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, How does that work for covers? So when you do a cover, um, again, those are, um, oh, I'm forgetting the term now, but they're, uh, they, you basically replicated the copyright. So it's not, a, it's not an independent um, new copyright. Uh, oh my God. So the original artist still gets paid and does the covering artist get anything? No, 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 no. The original artist, um, okay, technically if you're doing a cover, you should Mm -hmm. be getting this and I'm forgetting the term and it's so bad because I'm a lawyer. Are we talking Uh, about a live cover or just uh, like performing a cover? 
I'm assuming you're talking about like if somebody posts a cover on YouTube or something. Sure. Alien Ant Farm, Smooth Criminal, what did Michael Jackson Yeah, do? so they should be getting clearance from the owners of that copyright to be creating mm-hmm. and reproducing uh, this cover, their, that mu- original music uh, for sale, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't, you know, the chances that someone's going to come after you for couple cents on YouTube are. Doesn't are YouTube some, take care of that in some way too? Because they'll find they do copyright attached yeah, to this song. They do. So. Uh, they'll flag it. They'll they'll put notices on it. Sometimes they'll take it down. Okay. Um, but they don't help you negotiate with the no. original artist. Okay. Gotcha. No. So they try to mitigate that as much as possible. There used to be a great service called Limelight where you pay yeah. like fifty or hundred dollars and you get whatever two thousand views. Of that, like you pay per how many views you get. So if you're gonna get ten thousand views in a cover, you pay Limelight, which I don't know if there's an alternative now, which they, I think people would be interested. Yeah, in. they have a few of them. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but um, they have a few services like that. And that protects you in case you actually do well with that cover. Yeah, because that's mm. a service that is securing those, you know, the reproduction rights of that original music for you. Gotcha. Right. So you mm. just subscribe there, and then they'll take care of that for you. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned uh, like a 50-50 kind of default split between writer and producer. Right. Should writers and producers be signing any paperwork or agreements at least between themselves like before they start working on projects or is it kind of just yeah, by in, default? In an ideal situation, all the paperwork's, paperwork's done ahead of time, Okay. Yeah. right? It's like you guys have an understanding of what you're creating together contractually ahead of time. Uh, in practice, it doesn't work that way, right? Mm-hmm. Artists will go into a studio and listen th- through a whole beat pack before they decide what they're going to go on. And then, you know, True. they may go back to the producer and be like, hey, can you change this? So it's, it's It just doesn't work that way. Um, I would definitely recommend getting your paperwork done before you release the song. Um, it's always much harder to do once the song's released, collecting any advance or working out terms, things For like sure. that. So, um, you know, sometime in between cutting the record, getting it done, and then before releasing, make sure you have your paperwork in order. And, you know, producers don't even realize that sometimes, you know, there's publishing as a whole separate aspect, but as much as you're entitled to that, you can also ask for like one or two points on the sales side of it too. Right, that's also another income stream that's going to be tied to this record. Did you clear that up? Sales side as opposed to publishing. Yeah, so sales is like the actual actual um, record sales. So like streams or views or you know now we don't have CDs anymore, right? Yeah. So um, you know as a producer, you, you're getting your fifty percent publishing, oh. but that's if the song is played in a public venue, um, if it's played on the radio things mm-hmm. like that. But now you can also negotiate and get a portion of the sales. So, you know, if the song is, um, you know, like from streaming or YouTube or something like that, you can you can negotiate, get a portion of that. Typically, um, well, my advice is, the way I look at this actually is, the artist typically invests all the money into the record, right. not the producer, right? So if you're not mm-hmm. getting some of the sales, it's not really all that unfair because it's the artist that has put the money into it. If you are right. investing into the record, then I think definitely you should be entitled to some of the sales. And that right. investment can also be your time. Your right. time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Your time, you know, your promotion through whatever channels you have, you mm-hmm. can, um, you know, money, mm-hmm. however you decide to invest into that record. Right. Yeah. We hear we hear terms like copywriting, trademarking, and then like intellectual, intellectual property. Yeah. 
Um, what steps should be taken by creators to protect their work? I know that could get deep, so maybe just an yeah. overview for people so, to kind of understand. This is something I'd recommend you actually talk to a lawyer about because it's all um, very unique to that particular situation. Mm-hmm. For example, as an artist, you could have, you know, your your music. You also have your brand as an artist. You also mm-hmm. have your merchandise. A lot of artists will have some sort of like collective or um, you know group that they're associated with mm-hmm. that they want to kind of protect as well. Yeah. It's it, it can get it's very difficult to give general advice on something like that. For sure, for sure, yeah. Um, the best advice I can give is actually talk to somebody, talk to a lawyer who can advise you specifically on what you're looking to do and how to protect it. True. What about artists that may, especially now, not have the money to meet with a lawyer? Are there any resources that they can so, look into themselves? Um, I know you should talk to a lawyer. That's the real well, answer. Well, I was going to say, like, this is what I was talking about initially with understanding, you know, that this is now a business and what you need to run this business, mm. right? And then, mm. you know, important. gathering those resources and, and making sure you're in your position to do that because, let's say, for example, you can't afford a lawyer or, um, you know, an accountant or, or time with someone who can help you with these things. Mm-hmm. How successful is your business now actually going to be right you can mm-hmm. find an agreement online um you know that you doesn't address your publishing right um or gives it all to the artist who knows mm-hmm. and uh you know now you've you've essentially lost money not just left money on the table and, and how successful can your business really be so there are resources um you know resources like this is a good one right. um you know, you can Google and find all sorts of information. The only danger is um, the right information. Finding the right information. Yeah. yeah. So, again, this is this is like uh, that's the big problem, isn't it? With everything now. Yeah. It's just yeah. A, a lot of information. It's so much. Yeah, and then you'll find like whatever you're searching or googling is also so tailored to like not just like all the information. It's like mm-hmm. based on your past searches and whatever, it's going to give you right. very specific information. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to find everything you need to know online. Got you. Try using DuckDuckGo. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. There's a couple. Um, I wanted to go back to a comment you had made about publishing and something I've heard and just listening to other artists. Why is it when an artist gets into, I guess, becoming an artist that they have to sign they're publishing or signed to a publishing company. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that whole yeah. industry? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. So the reason why you sign to a publishing company is because you have performing rights organizations all over the world, okay. right? So in Canada, we have SOCAN. In the US, they have ASCAP and BMI. Yeah. They have them all over the world. So publishing companies can coordinate between all of those PROs, performing rights organizations, mm-hmm. to collect royalties from all over Asia, Russia, Africa, wherever it is. Okay. It's very difficult for you to coordinate that and do that on your own. Makes sense. That's one reason. Okay. Another reason is um, publishing companies will work on... Um, promoting your publishing, right? So they'll, they should be anyways working on, you know, like selling or um, soliciting your publishing for 
different opportunities. Sync is a big one. Okay. All right. So synchronization. So this is one of the copyrights that ties to your to your music. Um, so when you synchronize, is you're you're synchronizing your copyright, so your lyrics or your instrumental over another source of media, okay. video, uh, film, something like that. Right. Right. So let's take a commercial for example. So a publisher um, should be trying to solicit. Uh, commercial opportunities for you to then put your music in, mm-hmm. right? Um, unfortunately, you know a lot of the smaller publishers will will do that. They'll put the time into doing that type of thing because that's where they make their money. Right. A lot of the bigger ones, you know, they're making so much just collecting off your a percentage of your publishing for by collecting it for you all over um, that they don't really put the time and effort into doing that. But right. there, you know, the sync market is huge it's very good money for both artists and producers um if you can find a good publisher to help you with something like that it, it's it's a really good position to be in um but yeah so you know publishing companies help with those type of things even you know if you're if you if you have an instrumental or you know you're a songwriter publishing company may also sell or license that stuff to another artist like they they should be working in opportunities where they're soliciting your publishing to other artists as well right so they can then take that and just record over it mm-hmm. right so that's uh so it, it's it's very useful to have and that is different from a recording um situation or recording agreement where that is more so tailored to uh record label funding the recording process right. and marketing for that project or album and then um, advertising for sale, right? And then right. managing the sales side of things. So that's completely separate from the publishing side of things. I, no, that makes sense. I was thinking of another question and uh, I don't know if I even want to ask it, but why is it that so many new artists always find themselves in really bad deals? Okay, so um, it's a combination of things. Okay, one is you know they don't get help. Mm-hmm. They don't have a lawyer look at it. They don't really um, take the time to assess the deal properly. Another thing is artists. You know you've been doing this for so long. Yeah. You have an opportunity to finally make some money on this, or so you think. They're willing to sign whatever is put in front of them. Right. <clears throat> Sorry, we won't sign whatever's put in front of them. You know, a lot of them don't even consider that I may not want to sign this all together once I have somebody look at it. Right. Even if you look at movies, it's all, I want a deal. I need to get that deal. Yeah, once you yeah. get that deal, then what? You know, somebody said the word deal to me. I'm going to sign this paper now. Right, exactly. That's a good point. Right. And, you know, there's been record deals that I've worked on where they were just garbage when they showed up in my office. Why do you um, think that is, though, that... They're always presented with horrible can I contracts. I think I can answer that. Sure. Okay. It's because it, that's what happens with anything. If you don't have legal help buying a house, no, I get, I get that. The, yeah, I get. There's well, you want to take advantage of it, but why is it that like the contracts are so convoluted and just so like some people, like Dave Chappelle, for example, is going through something right now yeah. with Comedy Central, where the wording of the contract is so gray no one can understand it and it's basically now so confusing that it can be interpreted 10 different ways and he'd have to fight it 10 different times to try and get it yeah that's interesting um because the legally the reason we word it 
that way right. so that it cannot be interpreted mm. another way. It's very specific, right? Mm. There's intent behind every word in there. Right. And the and the reason it's worded that way is so that, you know, contractually, we know exactly what we were contracting for and it can't be interpreted another way. Mm. Of course, you know, that's arguable and you can find a way. But just to give you the label side of this, you know, where you're saying like every deal is bad. Sorry, I, that was a super big generalization. No, but it's, but. It's, it's a general, it's a pretty common um, thought amongst the general public and artists especially, For right? Sure. So, um, you know, the business of music has changed, right? Revenue streams for labels don't exist anymore, right? right. Nobody's printing and selling uh, CDs, right? Distribution mm -hmm. is all now done. You can do Digitally, it yourself, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. right? Marketing more or less you can do yourself now too. You know, the, the value that labels can offer has diminished or income streams have diminished, right? Not that they need to be making more money, but right. just from their standpoint, they're a profit ma maximizing organization as well. So you got to think where they're coming from. Right. And when they present this, this offer or this deal, they're assessing what they know of the investment and, you know, the bunch of parameters go into it you know, how many options they need, they think, to earn back their money. That correlates into the advance, how much mm -hmm. investment they need to put into marketing, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's like me wanting, you know, to buy something off of you. I'm going to look at it and I'm going to offer you a price that I think works for that. I right. want to buy a ball of water, let's say, right? Now, you're going to come back to me and say, look, I understand you think it's worth a dollar, but this water comes from a mountain in Japan, actually. And, you know, it's being seen on here, this commercial, this movie here. I actually think it's worth this much. Right. And then you get into that negotiation. And it's only through that negotiation, really, that you get to, like, what it's actually worth. Right? Now, the only thing is, when we were you were saying earlier how artists kind of get locked into these bad deals, it's not that they're... Um, so much bad in a sense, I don't like to say that, but they can be long. Okay. Um, and they are heavily weighted against the artist in the beginning. That's this this is the tough part. It's in the beginning you understand that it's gonna be heavily weighted against you because you're not coming in with much. They're making the investment you. But and they're some, taking a risk, right? There's for correct. every successful yeah. artist they invest in a hundred artists that fail. Right. Exactly. And they so, don't pay that back. So it's like a proof of concept almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at some point that should transition where you now have leverage over your own product. Mind you, the leverage comes off of the work in the back that the label has done, ideally. Um, but you can have a deal where, you know, the artists in their first uh, year, the two deliverables are, let's say, like a mixtape and an album. Right. Mm -hmm. But then the label has four other options. So if they don't make their investment back on that first album, the, the option is in their discretion uh, to then extend for another year and Ooh. another album, okay. right? And then if they don't make it back on that one, then they just keep going, right? And that's why, like, again, if you're deciding to get into this, as you know, music as a livelihood, you need to understand all these things for because sure. as much money as you're making, it all has to go back into the music. All of your recording costs are actually expenses that the label recovers out of the income that you earn right. on the sale of your music. Yeah, if you succeed, they take their money back. They take their money back. So yeah, you end up first. with not as much as you think you did. For sure. And then now, this is how it works. It's almost kind of, uh, it's not set up properly. It's not set up for success. Exactly. So they give the artists 500000 advance, yeah. right? Not 
and in the agreement, it says, you know, we're going to invest this much money into your project, but all of our expenses will be paid back from your royalties. Cool. You take your 500,000, you know, you buy a house, um, you kind of, you know, hire some people, write a manager, stuff like that. Get yourself set up. Fine. Now you put out your first album, you make a million dollars. The label takes back, I don't know, 400,000 in expenses for marketing, recording, music videos, all of that. Um, then and they, they still haven't recouped their entire investment. Right. Right. And that um, didn't even touch the 500,000 advance. They took 400 out of the... Yeah, advance. the advance itself is going to get that. So the advance itself is also recu- recoupable, <laughs> wow. right? Um, so now at the end of your album, you're left with like, you know, $100,000, let's say. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, I thought I made a million dollars on this. My lifestyle now is... I need that to sustain this. For sure. Right? So you got to take the next album where they give you another advance of this time now it'll be 800,000 or a million, right? Um, And they put that money in because they know they're going to get it out when you sell your album. And it's just this cycle where you got to keep taking and giving. It's awful. Yeah. So that's why it's it's just unfortunate that this is the way music works now. This is like... And that's why some artists stop creating because they're just like, I'm it, a slave really, to the industry. Yeah, it really kills the process. You see that with a ton of artists For where sure, it yeah. just like, they get so fed up with it that they're just like over music. Yeah, right? cycle, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's why I, I always advise, again, you're a business. So as much as you love making music, you got to think what's going to work for your business. So take that platform, take some of that advance money, take, you know, um, well take, you know, whatever you can, and then now invest those funds, diversify yourself and invest in other things that can sustain you and make you money outside of music because you know that the cycle that you're in. Right. Right. And, and I then, think a lot of artists are noticing that now as you see that music is most almost like a loss leader for them where they're just making the music, but they're trying to promote a brand that they're invested in or something else. Right. Do you pitch that to new artists now that they they shouldn't really focus too heavily on trying to make a lot of money off music. Because when you look at like Jay-Z and all the <clears throat> music execs, music is actually one of their lowest or smallest revenue streams. It's not even like, and Kanye, for example, too. I don't yeah, even think exactly. he makes money off of music. Yeah, exactly, right? So um, yeah, in the beginning, it's tough. You got to get to that level, level right? right? For sure. So, and again, this is all like careful planning and consideration, mm-hmm. right? This is what I'm talking about with this mentality and, and, and that fundamental. It's like, you got to know that so then you can do things as you go to prepare yourself for that right so yeah definitely you know like i I always advise um my clients to think about these type of things and it's like you know what you get your events maybe you put it into like a house or something right worst case scenario you sell the house you get the money back but at least it's secure somewhere Mm -hmm. right as opposed to sending on on a, a more depreciable asset Bentley or something silly. Something, yeah. right? Yeah. You put it into a house, you know, like maybe you can even, if you need some of the money back, you take out a line of credit on the house to right. use it to like hire your manager or whatever you need to do. Right. But at least you have like a solid asset, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, I always advise clients uh, on things like that. And it just goes into the whole, like it's it shouldn't be taken lightly to decide to do this. I don't want to discourage people, but you know, if you create music and you love it and you're great at it, Maybe that's what you're meant to do. And then, you know, you do that. But once you decide to like to make turn into business, like any business, like doing anything, it takes a lot of time and thought in how to make that profitable. For sure. And I think 
it's being said now, but I don't think a lot of artists are still aware of the business mindset that they have to have in order to be successful. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur and, and as I mentioned like earlier, right, like I have a business background, mm-hmm. uh, I have an economics degree. So I always look at it and this is what we were talking about earlier. If I look at it through a legal lens, right, I right. actually look at it from a business lens always. Right. Right. So. And that's like a growth and strategy type of lens, right? Exactly. Because even when you talked about um, just your career path coming out of school and choices you made in the earlier stages, it sounded to me like it was heavily based on finding yourself somewhere, kind of, I guess, assessing the situation, seeing where you are, and then looking forward. You didn't just follow a straight path. You kind of, it sounded to me at least like you stopped at points, considered things and moved forward. And I think for artists, especially the that we all deal with on a regular basis and for our businesses, that's an important um, tool and way of thinking. Um, So I thank you for sharing that with us for sure. I think that um, what you've provided us with today has been really valuable and maybe just wrapping up with maybe, I actually had a list full of questions from artists, but you kind of answered them all from what it looks like. so maybe just wrapping up for one, can you let people know where to find you um, to get in touch to talk, I guess, deeper specifically yeah. about their careers? Yeah, so uh, my practice is MSM Legal Group. Uh, my office is in Mississauga, but um, I can be reached uh, by email. Uh, if you go msmlegalgroup.com, uh, you'll find me there. I am on Instagram, although I rarely use it um, <laughs> as of recently because it's just, I find myself, it just takes too much time and attention away from other things in my life now. For sure. Um, so emails or is probably the best way. My, our office number is on the website as well, msmlegalgroup.com. Um, yeah, and then I'm always open to, uh, to, to giving information and talk to people and helping people as much as possible. So if you have questions, definitely reach out and then I'll see if I can help. Awesome, man. Really, really appreciate you coming in and talking to us. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. I think this is a great platform. Thanks for all the nuggets. Yes, sir. Bye. As a podcaster, you know that great content is only half the battle. The other half is finding the right hosting platform to reach your audience. That's where Captivate comes in. With unlimited podcasts, advanced analytics, and personalized support, Captivate has everything you need to grow your audience and monetize your show. Join the thousands of successful podcasters just like us who trust Captivate for their hosting needs. Visit dnaairwaves.com slash Captivate today to start your free trial.